Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Do you think Donald Trump is making comedy worse? I mean, he's making everything worse. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein. This is on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is Tig Notaro, an amazing comedian. She's done a ton of huge specials. She is the lead actor and writer and mind behind One Mississippi, which is an Amazon show that is just incredible. If you don't watch it, you, you really should. Not only am I a fan of it, but, but my producer, Jillian Weinberg, is a huge fan. Our executive editor, Allison Rocky, is a huge fan. There are a ton of one Mississippi fans here. She's also the producer of one of DC's really great comedy institutions, the, the annual Benson Ball. Uh, we talk a bit about that, and you should check that out if you're in DC. It is this very week, if you were listening to this podcast in real time, it is happening in a couple of days. And you can, uh, we tell you where to get tickets here at the end of the show. We also talk in this about Natara's schooling background. Like me, she was a very bad student. Uh, she dropped out of high school. And we talked about what didn't work for her in that learning process. We talk about how she writes and the difference between writing jokes for a comedy special and, and, and writing a television show. Talk a lot about sexual harassment, the Harvey Weinstein allegations in Hollywood. Notaro has said that Louis C.K., who's had a lot of these allegations, dog him, who she also has a professional relationship with. He's an executive producer on her show that he needs to actually address these. We talk about the way in which this is spread into media, into journalism, into my industry. We talk about the shitty media men list that has made news recently. Um, that part of the conversation is interesting and, uh, and I think worth hearing. So with that, here's Tig Notaro. Tig Notaro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So you did not like school. <laughs> right out of the gate. I, I <laughs> did not like school, no. Why not? You know, I didn't know why at the time. And uh, I think it went until I was an adult and... I was taking a class for motorcycle safety. I had owned motorcycles for years, but never got my license or took any safety course. And then there I was sitting in this classroom and being told how to uh, drive a motorcycle, which I already knew. And I felt as irritated as I did as a kid sitting in class. Not that I knew everything as a kid, but I think that dynamic didn't work for me where somebody's standing up in front of a group of people and just tells us all the information and we just take it in. I, I think I like more of a an exchange or I like to seek out information on my own. Did you find structured ways of learning later in life that, that, that worked for you? Well, I mean, in stand-up... I, my whole life changed and I became so focused and I was writing all the time and I was just this dedicated, devoted, structured person that I had not ever been. And I know comedy didn't really have that reputation, but 
that's what it did for me was gave me anywhere from structure to a sense of purpose to more of an interest, I think, in the world and learning. And I guess things came to me just differently at a different time. So I, a lot of that resonates for me. So I had a 2.2 average in high school and did not, did, did not do well. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I That's really get, way higher than mine. Oh, well, see, now I feel bad. <laughs> I, I get really upset by the people like, oh, I did so badly in high school. And it's like a 3.5. It's It's not good. But it wasn't until a lot later that I realized that I couldn't listen to just somebody talk at the front of a room. Like, mm -hmm. I, I really think that I just have some deficiency in learning that way. Yeah. And because of that, I thought I was really lazy because that's what people always told me I was because mm -hmm. <laughs> I was doing this terrible job. And later— I was on, told that all the time about myself as well. It was very core to my identity. The, the biggest surprise of my life is that I proved to be a hard worker. Me too. And that was only when I found blogging, which I think like comedy in 2003, first nobody knew what blogging was, but I liked it so much mm -hmm. that this completely unstructured amateur thing I was doing on my own as a college student, I began getting up every day at seven in the morning to make sure I was writing early enough for people on the East Coast. Not that anybody was reading, but, but it was weird that when my context changed, all of my habits changed too. And, and mm -hmm. it really changed my idea about what it means for people to be successful because it's so clear to me that if I didn't find that, I could just be a guy who seems lazy, not doing a very good job at a bunch of other things. That There's no guarantee that that you find a, a, a set of circumstances that works out for you in life. I know. I mean, I people always ask how I got to where I am. And it's just, if you followed my path, you'd have to be lost for so long. You had to have <laughs> had cancer you had to have uh, done so many random, confusing, and difficult things that I, I just wouldn't even know where to begin to guide somebody. I, I know that you have two young children. Is your experience in school, has that changed at all how you think about how to educate them or what would happen if you if you thought you saw them having the experience you had? Well, you know, it's funny because my wife also dropped out of high school. <laughs> and uh, But she has a different story. I failed eighth grade twice. They moved me up to ninth grade. I failed that, and then I dropped out. My wife, meanwhile, had a 4.1 her senior year and dropped out. And that was because she knew she wanted to be an actor, and she wanted to get started, and she has been supporting herself that way since she was 18. And we talk a lot about our children's educations. And I think where we are with things is that we want to always really pay attention to who they are as people. You know, if somebody really was paying attention to me, I was reading a lot as a kid. I was reading rock magazines and rock biographies and autobiographies and I was teaching myself guitar and drums, and I was an interested, motivated kid, but I was learning everything through music. And I think that applying that to our children and their their education is what we're thinking. We don't want to force them to be anyone they aren't or take a path that's not right for them. We want to provide the opportunities to go in whatever direction they're going. If one of our sons was into masonry or being a car mechanic or 
any other sort of job that needed certification, I'd want to help encourage and supply that opportunity for them. Have you ever regretted not going back to school or doing no. any other kind of formalized learning? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I remember a teacher of mine when I was a kid, when I was dropping out, she said, but what about prom or walking across the stage or what? And I just was looking at her like, you really don't know me. I, I can't even imagine sticking it out for those reasons. And I wanted to get out of there. When you dropped out, what, what did you do? Uh, I got a job at a daycare center and I got a job delivering pizzas and I saved up money and then I moved to Colorado and just started my life there. I didn't know anybody, but I was drawn to the mountains and started hanging out in cafes where there were open mics and wanted to be around, you know, artists and musicians and poets. And that's where I found my friends. When you were first moving to try to be near musicians and artists and poets, was your view of yourself as an artist, was it, was it music? Because it sounds like that was what you were into then, or did you were you already going towards stand-up and, and open mics? I, I was definitely going towards music. It was something that I fantasized about doing, being in a band and performing. But I, when I got on stage a few times to perform music, it didn't feel right. It was truly the the kind of anxiety and meltdown that, was not manageable. And oddly, when I did stand-up, even though I had some nerves, it was it was manageable. I had always followed stand-up and wanted to do comedy, but I didn't think it was something in the cards for me for some reason. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I was reading an, an interview you did where you said that you, you really don't, or at least you didn't, write your jokes, that you work them out a bit in your head, but you go out with just a couple words on a sheet so that you're really being pulled forward in an extemporaneous way so it's more sort of true to the moment. That seems like a very scary way to do it. How, how did that evolve as, a, as an approach? It, it probably has a lot to do with my history with um, school and and work because I didn't like to sit down and write things out in that structured manner. And I also felt like 
I feel like when I'm in that fight or flight situation on stage, then my brain is forced to come up with a punchline in that immediate moment rather than sitting at a desk and being like, oh, what, what word would I use here? Or what direction should I go? Whereas my brain is on, in a good panicked way, thinking very fast and trying to get out of a situation. It's it's remarkable to me to hear you say that because when you're on stage, and I, I've seen a lot of your, your stand-up, it feels like the language is so precise. You're, you're someone who really uses language with a lot of accuracy and a lot of unexpectedness. And so my assumption was that that was extremely carefully written out beforehand. It, I mean, earlier in my career it was, but as I've gotten older, I... I mean, they're carefully chosen in that you might be seeing a story or joke that I've done for a year, and I've repeated it numerous times. And so it's a precise operation, but it it didn't start out that way. What's the transition from doing that kind of comedy to writing a television show, which is much more formalized before you shoot, I assume. I, I, I guess I don't mm-hmm. know for sure. That seems like a very different way of thinking, a very different way of, of doing the work day to day. It's so different. It's alarming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I it's something I would say that I'm getting used to, but we've done two seasons of One Mississippi and don't know if we're going to get a third season. We're still waiting, but it's something that, it's just a whole different world that I've never, ever worked in to sit down and write half hour scripted shows it's just it's really fascinating especially under the guidance of our experienced writers in the room that know character development and story structure and it's fascinating it doesn't come naturally to me i respect <laughs> my elders so much uh, in this process. But I'm also wanting to find a happy medium between that completely structured process and also making sure I can keep things feeling fresh for myself and in the moment. It's, it's, it's a tricky balancing act. What, what is your role in that room like to, to be the sort of creative or authentic center of a show when the work of constructing that show is work that you're maybe the least experienced person in the room on. How do you manage that room or do you manage that room? Well, I manage it in the way that it's my show, but I also hired somebody with a lot more experience. Well, I mean, not even a lot more, all of the experience that I didn't have. And I have had numerous conversations with all of the writers about what I want for the show uh, as far as storylines and characters and the general feel of the show. And it's their job to help me execute that. So I'll present a lot of ideas and we'll work through them. Other writers in the room will present their ideas. We'll work through that. And then you get the final product, which is so many different threads from, there's six writers 
they're all female writers on the show, and everybody has um, added something of their own to it. And we've, I think, done a really phenomenal job of making it seem like my life, my story. And that's the fun of it, too, is even though I didn't necessarily experience all that's happening in this semi-autobiographical show, it really shows the talent that I'm surrounded by because it's believable and it's it's fun for me to be in situations that I was never in and just see how I would react or my family would react in situations they've never been in. Then also it's really intense and funny to recreate things that did happen. There are very few shows I can think of that are able to hold as much to, to a mood as One Mississippi. There's a lot of just restraint in the writing and restraint in the sort of emotional tone of the show. At, at least as someone watching, it feels very Southern to me. feels like not the California culture. And a lot of shows really do feel like they reflect California, which is, which is where I'm from. I'm curious how you hold to that because there's got to be a lot of impulse to hype things up, to push them forward. And, and a lot seems to me in the show to go unsaid or to be held back so things can unfold in a, in a somewhat slower, more human way. Well, I mean, that's a speed that feels right for me. And I think I, I work well in that. And I feel like I come across best in that mood or um, speed. I mean, I've had many moments with other writers or studio or network executives wanting certain things to happen that didn't feel like I would do it or that things would escalate in a certain way that was being suggested to me. And it's really just uh, having that open conversation of explaining these little details of why that doesn't feel right to me or I, I can't bring myself to say that. And it's maybe just changing one word or directing the story in a slightly different way that makes everyone in the room happy, but it keeps things on track for me in a way that maintains that authenticity. Is the ability to maintain that authenticity helped or hurt by the fact that it's you and your love interest is played by your real-life partner, and the show is clearly somewhat autobiographical, that feels like it would be a very psychologically strange space to navigate to me. But would at the same time create a lot of ability to say, no, like, this isn't, th these characters can't do anything because they're just, they're, they're real. I mean, how do you navigate what is fiction and what isn't there? It's such a crazy stew that we're... Uh cooking up over there. It's really just mine and everyone else's instincts. You know, Stephanie, my wife, and I talk a lot about, do we need to share this part of our relationship? Or, oh my gosh, it'd be so fun to recreate this moment, but in a different scenario or a different environment. And it's constant negotiations going on. And then we think we've come up with, okay, this is perfect. We're ready to go. And then we hand it over to the network and studio. And then they have all of their rounds of notes. And it goes right back into negotiating and pushing and pulling. And 
um, rerouting, rewriting. Are there parts of your life that you've put forward on the show that that you ultimately wished you had kept to yourself? No, not at all. I feel like anything I've put out there, I'm comfortable with that being a part of the TV show, my documentary, my book, especially what I've put out in the past five years. There's similarities and there's threads that connect them all, but they're also all very different. And this, this show is the biggest departure from everything in the past five years. As much as it's connected to it, it's different because it is semi-autobiographical. And I get to make up different stories and it makes it more exciting. How often when you have a story that is from your life, do you get the feedback that it's not realistic? <laughs> I've gotten it a few times and it's it's really funny. I got that first season, I think I had three love interests or something and and somebody at the network or somebody at the studio felt like we should pull it back. It felt a bit much and and I was like, okay, but in real life I was there were five people. <laughs> <laughs> So there's just funny things like that. Like with my stepfather, when he explained to me that now that my mother was dead, that we were technically not related anymore. Um, there, it just sometimes it, it seems a bit much or unbelievable. And, and there are so many things we toned down. I was thinking about that because, so my background and, and current uh work is, is primary political journalism. Mm-hmm. And I feel very trapped in this space where nothing that I'm reporting on seems realistic to me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. That that everything has become a story that if you had just outlined it, Kid Rock might run for Senate in Michigan and Donald yeah. Trump is president. And yeah. this seems to be this strange truth is stranger than fiction age. Yeah. And and reality doesn't really stick to creating believable plot lines in a way that I, at least personally, have found frustrating. I'm, I'm curious, just looking around you, how do you process what's going on? I think I feel shell-shocked. And it's also coming at a time that's very sensitive for me in that I have 15-month-old baby boys. And yeah, there's obviously a lot of room for laughing and poking fun at the insanity around you but then there's also it's stunning in not in not a great way where it's it's hard to laugh too hard or long uh, without wanting to start handling things one of the um, stories uh, as we're talking this morning was that Paul Ryan the, the speaker, gave a comedy routine last night about Donald Trump. Well, a lot of it was about Donald Trump. And, you know, there's all these jokes about how, you know, Ryan gets up in the morning and reads Twitter, deciding what he's going to pretend he didn't see. And mm-hmm. it, it has this quality of um, all of these jokes are just statements of truth, uh-huh. right? He tells this joke of, you know, a year ago, Donald Trump was here and he said these things were unbecoming of a president and, and offensive, and at least he's learned his lesson. And, you know, everybody laughs because, of course, he hasn't. And... The, the role that comedy is playing right now feels very, it, it feels strange to me. And it seems to me that it's strange to everybody in it. Jimmy Kimmel becoming 
a healthcare activist and Seth Meyers um, becoming much more forthright on, on a lot of these issues and Colbert, you know, his show sort of revived as it became more political again. I don't want to ask the big question of what is the role of comedy, but do you think Donald Trump is making comedy worse? I mean, he's making everything worse. <laughs> I, do, I, I, I mean, I, I can't even give him, I can't give him, yeah, anything other than that. The other big story of the past couple of weeks has been the the Harvey Weinstein expanding, expanding, expanding universe of ever more horrible allegations and stories. Do you think that this actually changes the culture in Hollywood? Do you think this is everybody getting to burn the effigy of this one guy? Or do you think this is the beginning of a true cultural change? I feel like it's too soon to tell, but it's one Mississippi has this ongoing thread in season one and season two about sexual assault and harassment and abuse. And and it is still a comedy, but with everything happening right now, it, it feels like we wrote this show weeks ago because we actually have an episode in season two of a producer masturbating in front of um, a co-worker. And um, I mean, we hoped there would be some sort of change by the time the show was out streaming, but I don't think anybody in the room really saw the tidal wave of movement that was going on. And I I hope, I always go back to that word because that is what it is, is it gives me a lot of hope. And it's it's so extreme, these stories, these accusations, these crimes. And it's also so extreme, the steps that are being taken to to handle things. And it's it's it gives me hope. The meta conversation around Weinstein has been that some of the men who there's these open secrets about these sort of everybody quote unquote knows, but 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 nobody talks about it. That I think one of the questions there is how many more names publicly add on to that list. And and you've talked in the past about Louis C.K., who was an executive producer on the show. I mean, is he somebody who should be at this point in this conversation? From what I understand. I I think he's been in the conversation. Just with the allegations and rumors, I mean, I, I think that his name has been in there. It's been in the mix. What do you think is the, the way that people who are outside of this world and, and hear these names, hear these names mentioned, hear that these people are in the mix, what should people think? How should they act? I mean, what is... What, what, what is the information if you want to try to be like a responsible human being consuming culture right now? You know, if you've watched Louis C.K. things in the past, what should one do with that information? Well, I think that uh, the important thing for people to understand is that it's hard for, it was so hard for these people to come out against Harvey Weinstein. And it's hard to come out against somebody who has abused or violated you in some way. 
even if you you're not up against somebody that's extremely powerful in the entertainment business, it's hard. It's so tricky because, yes, until you have actual people coming out, you don't really have anything except for a lot of smoke. But what needs to happen is when there is smoke, it's very important for people to be running to put out the fire. It needs to be very cut and dry what we're dealing with. And it, again, it's hard for people to come out, but that doesn't mean that they're not out there. And it doesn't mean that they won't come out with stories, but I just really encourage people to believe the victims when they do come out, if they do come out, because there's nothing, nothing in it for anyone to come forward, publicly accuse somebody of assault or abuse. There's also really nothing in it for somebody to come out within their circle of friends or coworkers about abuse. Yeah, I mean, we in journalism have been struggling with this in the past couple of weeks. There's a, a list has gone around, a spreadsheet called Shitty Media Men. And uh -huh. it's a list of names of men at different media organizations and um, allegations of what they did. And those allegations range from, you know, sent creepy Twitter direct messages or mm -hmm. had awkward lunches mm -hmm. or, you know, a shitty boss all the way up to rape, um, yeah. all the way up to physical abuse. And the existence of the list has been reported on um, and it's, gone around and, and a lot of, of folks, including me, have seen it. Um, and it's very hard to know what to do. Um, on the one hand, the allegations are anonymous. And on the other hand, as you say, it's not that one can't ever imagine why somebody would, you know, go on to one of these maliciously or why they might have, you know, certainly with some of the smaller things, maybe interpreted it differently. But on the other hand, it's a lot harder to be the person at the bringing forward one of these allegations and to just do nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think the the industry has been a little bit, it does not have a clear idea of exactly what to do. I know there are investigations at, at different places. I think separately from this list, um, my company's editorial directors at the parent company was let go for um, poor behavior. And it feels like we're in a moment where the culture is really being rocked in part because I do think there's a shift towards trying to do a better job believing and listening, but also there isn't really a structure yet for particularly across an industry. How do you report these things in a way that somebody can try to verify them? Like, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you do? How can we have better procedures? And I, I think people are beginning to think about that, but we're, we're in a moment of cultural change where I don't think legal or procedural change has come behind it. Mm -hmm. And it's created a lot of, a lot of confusion. Yeah, I mean, it's the list you're talking about reminds me of, again, on One Mississippi, we created this thing called the Red Pages, which is because you can't always rely on legal action. What you can do that we proposed on the show was to create 
a site to just give people a heads up. This person at my job or this person at my school has done this or uh, just to get people talking and just to try and protect or save somebody if the legal system is not going to handle it. The hard thing, right, and and this is a place where I have a lot of internal conflict about it, is for solutions like that, which does sound a lot like the the shitty media men list, Mm -hmm. what do you do, one, if the people don't know, right? So they can't say, no, 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 like, that isn't how it was. Or, you know, you were saying, when when you talked about Louis C.K., you had said that, you know, he really has to address this. And, And one thing that I'm noting on some of this is that, I assume maybe it's getting back to people, but there isn't really a formal mechanism for it to do so. And then even if it does, like what is a way for them to contest it, right? Like to go on like a, like put up a Twitter thread saying, no, like you haven't heard this about me, but somebody did say it. And and I want to tell you my, my side of the story. And yet if that never happens, I mean, you know, one of the, the real legal questions about a list like this is, is if it goes around and it, people end up not being able to get jobs because, nobody quite knows what to do with this information, but who wants to take the risk? The thing I I often come back to is that it's easy to think of the harms of these new things, but the harms of the current situation are are harms that are in the direction of a lot more sexual assault. And so we may just not have a good solution, but maybe there are other equilibriums that their problems are better problems, but it's very, uh, it's very unsatisfying. And I don't know, it's very uncomfortable. Oh, I'm I'm certainly not satisfied with um, the list that you brought up or the red pages we suggested. You know, it was just really to present the problem of it all and to show that a lot of times there is there's no place to go. There's no answer as of now. I know that this is a a big question, <laughs> uh, but when you think back to these people, and, and you've talked about having your own experiences with sexual harassment in the workplace. And, and you think about maybe just comedy, which is a world you grew up in, which I think has a lot of these allegations inside of it and, and around it, often does not seem to have been the friendliest atmosphere. W- what do you think creates that culture? Because the things that, I mean, there is a real dimension here where you're hearing these stories and there's just a genuine monstrousness to them. But they're so common that, I mean, you're really looking at something that we must be, that we are creating. When you think about what's being created, I mean, are there are, are there places you look? Are there villains you turn to? Are there cultural dynamics that, that you identify? Or is it somehow harder to pin down than that? I can't even begin to pin it down. I mean, what might be true for one isn't necessarily, you know, the profile might not add up for the other. <laughs> All my brain keeps going back to on such a surfacey level is just, there's just such, and I, I hate to be offensive, of course, towards actual pigs, but it's just piggish. I, I really, I'm at a loss for words. I, I don't understand it. I don't relate to it. I know that obviously when power gets into the hands of the wrong person, whatever, whatever else that they have. Um, and I think that when those people get power that have that 
perfect storm of weakness. It, it, it just goes so terribly wrong. And um, why on earth, why on earth would it come to rape or masturbating in front of uh, other people? Or I, I have no clue how... Um, I, I really, I, I wish I had answers other than I, I could talk in circles forever There's, about it. There is a piece of this that I think is something that a lot of men are having to confront for the first time or, or the first time seriously uh, in the Weinstein scandal. But it's present elsewhere. I've been doing a big piece or working on a piece about Donald Trump's past allegations. And it has this exact same dynamic mm-hmm. where there is this. I don't know if it's a cultural expectation or not, but but an idea that if there was sexual harassment, well, then obviously after that, there would be a deep enmity. There would be, or an avoidance, or, you know, this hostile relationship between the victim and her abuser. And with Weinstein and with the allegations against Trump, something you see is really awful acts committed, but then a continued kind of social contact because the power is leveraged in ways apologetically, helpfully. People want to make things right, right in the aftermath. And something that, that you've talked about is that when you faced um, harassment in the workplace, you you ended up working with a person in a continued way. I'm curious how you think about that dynamic, because I think that's something that has often been used to discredit these stories. And people are now having to come to... Um, reckon with the idea that maybe that is the norm, not the exception. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, you want to move beyond and you want to, you know, there's levels of denial and, and, and fear that's, uh, taking place and, and, uh, yeah, you want to make things right. I think there's moments of, did that really happen or, uh, well, I, I heard they're sober now, so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're they were in a weird spot then. And you know, there's just a lot of second guessing, and also just desperately trying to make everything okay. And and that's where I was with the situation that I was in. Did that make it feel okay? <laughs> no, no. I mean. Everything's been so stilted, and truly, I feel confident this person does not have any recollection of doing this to me because of alcoholism. In the sense that they they were blacked out drunk or in the sense yeah. that they would just write it off? Any, any and all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I whatever... Whatever the excuse would be. So you're you're coming to DC later this week for a festival you've been producing for a while. Mm-hmm. It's called the Benson Ball. It's uh, one of the best weekends of every year of my life since I've been doing the festival. And uh, this year we have Al Franken in town. We have oh, Paul he's in Sheen. town a lot now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He sure is. Uh, I mean, at the festival. And uh, Paul Shear, he his uh, podcast with Jason Manzukis and his wife, June. It's called How Did This Get Made? Where they review bad movies 
Cheryl Hines from Curb Your Enthusiasm. My wife will be there. I will be there. There's so many amazing shows going on and tickets are available still. So come on down. It's really one of the best times. How did you get involved in, in doing that here? Well, I had gone to D.C. for a comedy festival and um, I had a really great time that weekend. And actually, I met a girl when I went out there and I thought, well, I'd love to have a reason to keep going back to D.C. when I was involved with her. And, um, and so I thought I'd create a comedy festival when I found out the one I had originally gone out there to do was no longer going to be happening. So I thought, well, I'll just make my own comedy festival and I'll just keep <laughs> dating this girl, which I did for a few years. And and uh, that didn't work out, but the festival continues on. That, that's an incredible level of byproduct productivity <laughs> to a relationship, to a but long the, distance relationship. I mean, I really had so much fun when I went to D.C. And I, I wanted D.C. to be a part of my life somehow. And um, whether things worked out with the girl I was seeing or not. And it also felt like a, a, a city that regardless of your political views, any comedian would want to be in the middle of that city whether Trump is in office or Obama or Bush, it's just, it's ripe for comedy and conversation. And, and it's a great city to tool around in. And it just seemed to me perfect for comedians to, to spend time there. I'm curious to do you say a bit more on that because I, so I love DC. I've lived here for 12 years, but I think that it's non-political dimensions get really uh, overshadowed in the way people think about it. What was it about the the comedy scene or the art scene or just the city that that spoke to you? What was it that was non-political that appealed to you here? You know, I, I was getting to see the city and hang out in the city with the girl that I was seeing. She was an artist and, um, and her friend that we were hanging out with. You know, he owned restaurants and he was a a writer. And it was, I guess, just that, the going to all the different uh, restaurants and bars and cafes and rooftop parties and art openings and all of those um, experiences that I had through this girl and and her group of friends just um, sold me on the city. And if you want to get tickets, where can you go? So, you can go to brightestyoungthings.com slash Benson Ball for tickets. Excellent. Tig Nataro, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Tig for taking the time. Thank you to all of you for listening to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. We will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>